I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Season 2 of Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job will be to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I want to thank all of you that have been listening to us, whether you've been listening to us from the beginning or you joined us somewhere along the way or you just met us at our last episode. But it's been fun to realize that there are thousands and thousands of you interested in hearing these interviews. And, you know, as we kick off season two, we're going to have more opportunities for you to participate or contribute questions or uh, be on air for an interview. So stay tuned for some of those ideas. And we've had a lot of fun thinking about who to have on season two. So our upcoming guests will be Michael Chabon, Joanne Lippman, John Meacham. And we're going to kick off season two right now with Rachel Kushner, who is considered one of the most important fiction writers today. And her latest book is called The Mars Room. And like her previous book, The Flamethrowers, that cemented her reputation is pretty clear in The Mars Room why she so deserves this reputation. We're also going to be joined by Lisa Muscatine, who's one of the co-owners of Politics and Prose in Washington, D.C. Not only is she a friend, not only is she the co-owner of a legendary Politics and Prose, she was our very first guinea pig for our segment called What's on the Front Table. So uh, it'll be fun to both reflect on the conversation we had over a year ago and then to hear what she's reading now. But first, my conversation with Rachel Kushner. We are joined today by the incredibly talented Rachel Kushner. She's the author of The Flamethrowers and Telex from Cuba, both of which were National Book Award finalists. She is here today to talk with us about her superb new book, The Mars Room. This tells the story of Romy Hall, who was serving two consecutive life sentences, plus six years, at the Stanville Women's Correction Facility in California's Central Valley. The story alternates between the confined space and entrapment and details of prison life and Romy's wild days roaming the streets of the seedier side of San Francisco. With little or no parental supervision, Romy and her crew spend their days growing up, drinking, and fighting in the seedy sunset section of San Francisco. Romy ultimately winds up as a stripper working at the aforementioned Mars Room, where an encounter with a bouncer results in her son Jackson. Romy may be guilty of a crime, which I won't mention for those of you who haven't read the book, but she also depicts a life that seems destined to end in prison. Unstable childhood, abuse, poverty, leading to alcohol and drug abuse and ending with poor legal representation in a prison system seemingly and determinedly not interested in rehabilitation. The novel succeeds on many levels. One, it's a riveting story about the main character and an array of others that she's friends with in and out of prison. Two, it informs our understanding of prison life in a woman's correctional facility in thrilling and ironic detail. Lastly, 
it helps us ponder a society that gives rise to these inevitabilities, disappointments, and injustices. Rachel, welcome to Just the Right Book. Thanks for having me. Rachel, This is your books have all been quite different and on very different topics. What attracted you to this character or the prison system in California? It's interesting that you phrase your question that way because in a way – um, I was attracted to the character and the prison system for somewhat separate, if connected, reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll start with the prison system. I guess I've, I have always been unsettled by the idea mm. that uh, the American carceral system involves putting people inside prisons for very long stretches of time and sometimes life sentences. And the life sentence just always seemed so strange and terrible to me in that it's not a specific unit of time, but instead the length of the person's Mm. life, however long they end up living, is the length of time they are meant to pay back their commitment to the state. Mm. It's most often very poor people who serve long sentences, and they pay, instead of with money, with time, which is... With, with their lives. Yeah, with just a depletable resource. And um, I understand that, you know, most people in prison have been convicted of what the state considers, this is their language, quote-unquote, serious violent felonies. But I think that they spend way too much time there. Mm. The programs are not rehabilitative for people. And so as a citizen, it's just something that has uh, always haunted me. And so I decided about six years ago that I wanted to try to learn everything I could about the courts and the jails and the prisons in California, which is, you know, a a vast bureaucratic structure in my state. And as a citizen of Los Angeles, which is a big city that ends up supplying a lot of the population of these prisons, which are sited in very rural areas, as a citizen, I wanted to see who was going to the prisons and, you know, what the story was with that world. And not to say that I got to the bottom of it. I think that it's impossible for someone who hasn't been incarcerated to really know what prison is like. But I felt that it was incumbent upon me as an individual who has had certain middle-class resources that overwhelmingly those who've ended up in prison have not have. It was incumbent upon me to try to learn what I could and reckon with this system. And I ended up writing a novel about it. Um, In terms of the character, she's a bit different from that in that she is from my neighborhood. I wouldn't, I loved your description of my book. The only thing is I wouldn't exactly describe the sunset as seedy, although fair enough given the types of stories that the character does recount. (laughs) It all take place in the neighborhood. (laughs) Uh, Well, now everything in San Francisco is so moneyed that you have to be rich to buy any house anywhere. But it was like a sleepy kind of lower middle class neighborhood. Mm. I, I think that, you know, what may seem seedy or unsettling about that neighborhood and time is the way in which the kids roamed and the level of violence, especially among the young men. It was just very delinquent. Oh, and I mean, all these kids, I went to public school and I didn't really know that there was um, 
a world of college preparatory school <laughs> children with middle class parents until I got to college um, because all of those children were segregated from us in their posh private schools. Right. Um, you know, I had educated parents, which made all the difference for me, but I grew up around kids who predominantly did not. And in a way, the character Romy is, um, I, I put her in my friend group, and she roams a world that I knew very well. And it's not that sh- it's that prison is inevitable for somebody like that, and certainly not a life sentence. But once she gets that sentence, it's impossible for her not to analyze her life as some kind of trajectory of inevitability. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only, a, a, it's only a certain percentage of people who've had very few chances in life who end up going to prison. But among the people who go, overwhelmingly, they are people who have not had very many opportunities in life. Yeah, and Rachel, there's another piece maybe uh, to it uh, that occurs to me. One is, I think this the question you're raising that I was struck by in reading the book is, if you grow up like Romy, is it inevitable that you end up in prison? I think just by sheer numbers, you would have to say, no, um, it's not. But I do often think about, I do a lot of uh, nonprofit work in this arena, and I do think of people like Romy who don't end up in in prison, nonetheless be constrained or imprisoned in other ways. Not that being free and poor um, is the same as being in prison, which I, I think you show pretty clearly in the book just how the the details of that prison life are further constraining, humiliating to a person's life. But in the book, uh, she's currently a waitress at the IHOP right after she got out of high school. And in the book, you say, I was waitress 43, and the cooks would call 43, your order is up, which, as I only saw later, had been preparing me for here, meaning prison. To work at IHOP, you first go to Walmart or a place like it to get work shoes, where you see, if you don't already know, that most of the adult-sized shoes they sell are for working on construction sites or in hospitals, prisons, restaurants, and schools, and the children's shoes are starter versions of the same, waitress shoes and medical assistant shoes and work boots, cheap factory knockoffs for people whose choices are to work these crap jobs or crack up and go to a much lower grade of a low-grade shoe made by prison industries. So how do you think people who are going to Walmart to get these shoes, what does the inevitability of their lives look like, even if it's not prison, do you think? Right. Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, I don't claim to be any kind of expert on the way society is structured or divided, but that passage of mine that you just read back to me does remind me almost in a visual way of this set of layers. And, um, you know, at the bottom of the layers is that portion of society that, quote unquote, cracks up and goes to the lowest grade of low grade shoes. So Mm -hmm. there is some factor of chance in who ends up in prison. And as you say, certainly by the numbers, it's, it's not most people. It's just a few. It just happens to be that 
those who end up there are almost always from this, you know, so-called problematic layer of the society that cannot really be incorporated into the economy for various complicated reasons that, you know, a lot of it has to do with the death of the manufacturing industry. We don't have good jobs for unskilled people Mm -hmm. in this country. And like this is just an example in Los Angeles, you know, there is this incredible history of what was called a great migration among African-American Angelinos who came from Texas and Louisiana to work very good jobs in the aerospace industry during and after World War II. And all of those jobs died out by the late 1960s when Mm. the Watts riots occurred. And thereafter, you have generations of people who've really not had the opportunities to be gainfully employed. I mean, that's a small example. You know, now Los Angeles has a small black population, partly because of the cost of living there. It's only 6.5% black, but the prisons in California are 30% black. Right. So grossly disproportionate numbers, as we all know. But there are also a lot of really poor white people in prison in California. It's one-third, one-third, one-third black, Latina, and white. And, you know, I'm not, I don't claim to speak for uh, the working class or, you know, the, the, those people who are sort of like a surplus population that don't have a role to play in the economy. But um, I think that it's my job to think about the society in the way, mm-hmm. you know, as I said, the way it's structured. Well, one of the things that I think you do do in the book, and I am always drawn to uh, books like that, that by engaging you with a character and a set of um, other, a main character and a set of characters, it becomes more informative about issues that I think we all need to have an understanding of, but don't necessarily want to read in the newspaper. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, for me, the book is a novel, and it's more sort of about the poetic truth of the situation over the stark and banal facts of it, Mm -hmm. although I was certainly interested in learning and trying to master as well as I could the banal and stark facts of it. But the book is really about, for me, what felt as if it was a deep, investigation and rumination on on people mm-hmm. and destiny and chance and life and what it means to live among other people um, locked in a cage. But also I wanted the book to be funny because among the people I've gotten to know who are lifers in prison, there's all this vitality and um, people and are wit. brilliant um, because they have to be brilliant because they live in close quarters with no privacy, and they don't have any possessions by which to um, define themselves. They have their personalities, and so people know how to hustle and seduce and charm or threaten and intimidate. And if I couldn't find a way to replicate that in my own imagined world, I felt like I, wouldn't, I would have failed. So that was an imperative in terms of making the art. Well, I I would say mission accomplished because (laughs) despite the topic and the story, I think the characters that you create and the humor that's found among them as part of their, you know, if we were going to be incredibly kind about it, in the village that they're all 
operating in is pretty clear. You know, it's how they figure it out with all their cunning and intelligence and restraints and all of that. How did you even go about doing this level of research? You know, you have you have details about them working in the wood shop or sending ice cream sandwiches, you know, wrapped in Kotex through the toilet or, you know, women trying to entrap men into being pen pals. How'd you go about doing the research on it? Well, you know, it's funny. I learned all those details, each one that you uh, mentioned in quite different ways. I mean, it's just many years of curiosity on my part. I learned about the woodshop because I went on a tour of almost every men's facility in California with a group of criminology students who basically were on a job fair looking to work for the California Department of Corrections. And I was undercover as a continuing education student. And we were allowed to walk around on yards. We toured the prison industries facilities, you know, where they stamp license plates or make furniture for courtrooms, where they make prison work boots. I mean, it becomes very tautological. Like a lot of what they're making in prison industries is prison uniforms and prison work boots (laughs) or prison safety goggles for prison industries. Um, So it's this bizarre circular logic, and I was allowed to talk to the supervisors and ask what was going on there. Um, And there are certain things that I just put in the book, like I asked the guy, what kind of skills are they getting here? Because it was obvious to me that they weren't learning anything. And he said, they learn how to work. They learn how to be workers, Mm. show up on time and have a job. And those were the skills they were learning. Um, And with the methods that women have of shipping contraband from from one closed custody room to another, like from death row to administrative segregation. Friends have told me all about that. Um, I have good friends who were incarcerated for many, many years and others who are lifers right now. And um, they have this incredible expertise that's built up painfully over years of having been in prison And I think I've developed dialogues with people where they're eager to show me their expertise. And I have a friend who was my consultant on the book, and I I paid her, and she gave me incredible information about prison. And in a certain way, this project was almost like a collaboration because she was excited for her knowledge to be valued and for people in the broader world to know what her life has been like. Mm. Um, And a lot of what people told me made me think about the collective nature of intelligence in prison. And so, you know, I just built my own replica world out of what I came to understand through my own observations and from listening. And are some of the characters based on real people that you met in or out of prison? Um, largely not, but a few, yes. Um, there was a, there's a character called Doc. The He's a police officer. Yeah, I didn't of, like him, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't like him. <laughs> I like everybody in the book, but Doc, you know, has his issues. He's a troubled man. Um, he, in a way, is based, but really more inspired by, I'd say, A cop I met who was a lifer, he was serving life without possibility of parole, and he, you know, was a contract killer, he'd done some really terrible things, and I was standing in his cell talking to him for about five minutes, and somehow I just got a big gust 
of this person's essence mm. and was able to create this character. And I wouldn't say the character was this real man, but there's for me there was some link. Like I was able to ventriloquize this person based on this five-minute payload of human essence I felt I got from him. Um, then there's one character in the book called Sammy, who in a way is an homage to my friend Teresa Martinez. And she wanted some of the stories that she told me to be in the book. Mm -hmm. So I wrote them into the book. Like there's a scene of um, her talking about her girlfriend having hot wired a cement mixer. That is real. I don't think I could have made that up. Right. She told me that story. It was just so amazingly funny to me that I had to put it in the book. And I did so with her blessing. You know, Rachel, listening to you talk about this, I mean, it almost sounds like a cliche, but, you know, shame on any of us who paint prisoners with a single brush. And the minute you talk to any one of them, of course, they're a human being, right? Yeah. With a whole set of personalities and quirks and unappealing and appealing things. And I think what your book does is remind us, well, of course, they're 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 like the rest of us in in many ways. Right. You know, they're not they're in prison and and they've committed crimes. And that's you know, that certainly puts them in a bit of a separate category. But to think that all prisoners are are of one ilk is what you quickly disabuse as we meet all the characters in your book. It's nice to hear that. Thank you for saying it. Um, it makes me realize that it, it wasn't an objective of mine. Like, sure. I didn't want to moralize or shame anyone. And I didn't have a message that I was trying to transmit. I underwent instead myself an experience and it was intuitive and basic to me to listen to people. Mm. And as I got to know them, of course, you know, they rose up and shone with full personhood. And I created characters with personhood. And I, I, I think that, you know, the people in prison have been removed from society, so it's hard to see them and remember but if you sat across from somebody serving life and spent time with them and talked to them about their life and other aspects of who they are, aside from the one act of harm, let's say, that they committed, um, you can see that people are not defined by that thing, that they're, they're more complex. You know, a number of years ago, uh, we held an event at, the, at R.J. Julia's Wally Lamb, who lives here in Connecticut, um, like happens in... Uh, any number of prisons across the country teaches a writing. Oh, yeah. I've seen also that he edited an anthology of prison writing. Right. But we had the um, prisoners that were released, Had we had an author event for them to read some of their writing. And then some of the released prisoners read uh, some of the pieces of the um, people that were still incarcerated. And it was one of the most... And I had dinner with five or six of them before um, the event, and it was one of the most thrilling author events I could have imagined, um, A, because they were very interesting and in some cases gifted writers, the other, the breadth of their experience, and three, giving them an opportunity to use their voice in a public way was just, 
it was it was really probably one of the most thrilling experiences I've ever had. You know, I am so not surprised. This it makes me happy. I'm smiling. I'm not surprised to hear this, um, partly because I myself did a reading uh, two weeks ago at a big women's prison in California called um, uh, um, California Institution for Women. And after I read, there were women who stood up and read their own poems. Mm. They were just inspired to do it after hearing me read. And we had this conversation. And I keep telling people that it, it was the most exciting night of my life. Yeah. And I think that I, I've tried to think about why, and there are multiple reasons, some of which she just cited, but the, the quality of the attention and intelligence in the room was higher than one normally gets to experience. And I think part of it is that people are so alert to energy and other people in a room, and they've really had to fine-tune their presence and charisma because they're trapped around people all the time. Mm. And they were all so interesting. Like, I could feel waves of energy rolling. Yeah through the room, and I'll never forget I it. know, I know. I mean, I, I think that that's, um, you know, Mark Salzman had written um, a book about teaching writing. It was also in California. It was the L.A. Uh, Juvenile Delinquency Center where the kids were waiting to find out whether they'd be tried as an adult or not. Right. Let's go back to Rami a second, uh, Rachel, because one of the things, so she has a son, Jackson, which I uh, briefly mentioned in the introduction, and he's six years old when uh, she goes to prison. Her mother uh, takes care of him, and I don't think I'm giving anything away. Is Rami's mother dies in a car accident, and Jackson, the name of the son, goes into what we'll call the system. And Rami tries to figure out like where he is, what's going on, and at one point in when she was frustrated in her efforts and the guards were restricting her, the guard said to her, you know, you should have thought about this before you committed a crime if you care so much about your son. And obviously you use more eloquent language than I'm using. And I had sort of a complicated reaction to that that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. One is Rami was a bit of an indifferent mother, or she could be accused of being indifferent at times to her son when she was free. And, you know, yet she committed this crime and now her access was being denied and, and learning more about him. Tell us a little bit about the role that you saw of Jackson as a character and a character relative to Rami. Well, I never really judged her as a mother, mm -hmm. um, partly because it would seem like that judgment then would come to justify the idea that she no longer has access to him or is able to be his mother. Yeah. I mean, there are a lot of people in the world who are not perfect parents. Maybe nobody is. Yeah, and, and they don't need to be prisoners. <laughs> no, I mean, but their kids need a mother, yeah. whether she's a perfect mother or not. So I saw her as somebody who really loved her child. I did, too. I, I, oh, I definitely saw her as loving him. It made me think about, it, it, well, here's what it made me think about. In one of the reviews of your book, um, 
that was in the New York Review of Books that Madeline uh, Schwartz wrote. She said your book reminded her of Random Family by Adrienne Nicole LeBlanc. I don't know, is that a book you're familiar with? I am familiar with that book, but I don't really agree that there's a similarity between the two books. Okay, fair enough. But And maybe I could say why, too. Yeah, I'd it's, love for you to. Well, she's comparing them because they're books about poor people. Mm. So I, I just think that people need to get off of that line of thinking that there's only one space in art making, you know, or like there can only be one book about the lives of people who are poor and also get sucked into the carceral system of, you know, this cycle of prisons and jails and criminal courts. I think any serious artist, frankly, should be looking at the whole society. I totally agree. And I've I've read um, Random Family. I think it's like, I think it's an incredible book, although it it gets so depressing um, that I actually had to put it down. And my book is something else. It, it's literature. I mean, it's, it's not nonfiction. It's not about real people, which allows me to push through mm. and think into this realm from inside of a character. And to embody a character is very different than to, like, crash on the floor as an embedded journalist with a family. I think that's important work that she did, but I think it's a different kind of work and that many people should be doing all kinds of work so that there there isn't just one slot mm. that is the book in the bookstore that's about poor people. Yeah. And do you think it's changing, Rachel? Do you think the world of literature is beginning to encompass a wider lens? I don't know. I don't really feel like I'm an expert on, you know, what's being published right now and who's out there. I mean, I'd like to think so. This book is getting a big response, which suggests that people, even maybe more than publishers or reviewers, but regular people, understand that this is a direction literature needs to go. Mm. I think as a bookseller, I would agree with you. And what I find heartening is, I mean, people would be interested in your new book based on your reputation and the incredible energy and quality of your two previous books. So I think there would be an enormous amount. There is an enormous amount of enthusiasm because of that. But what I also find heartening is that people are as interested in the this story, in addition to wanting to read what Rachel Kushner's new right. book is. Well, it's actually my most readable funny book, I think. It, <laughs> it is. You know, I feel badly that I didn't pull out some of the funny sayings that you had in there, because I think it's hard. I was talking to someone about the book the other day, because I haven't stopped talking about it. I just... Oh, thank you so much. That's really nice to hear. Um, I just adore it. Uh, Moving funny over to optimistic. Do you think Romy was optimistic about the possibilities of life for Jackson, her son? I don't know. I mean, it's hard for me to speculate, because, you know, she doesn't really have psychological depth as a person outside of how I depicted her in the Mm -hmm. book. Um, I mean, it's an interesting question. I I think that if it were me, you know, I'm a mother myself. I think that um, 
having children does allow a person to have a deeper, broader view, frankly, of reality. It it, it matures you in a way, um, and I think that she would she would probably find the resources to have faith that he was going to be okay because it would be so painful to think that he couldn't um, find a way to advocate for himself. But I, I really don't know. Mm. I thought of it, and I don't want to uh, disclose it in any way, but I thought about it reading uh, the last uh, five or six sentences in the book, and I thought it left me feeling that she did have optimism about well, his life. That- you know where where she goes at the end of the book. I would say that it, yes, and also that it's more about thinking of how a life can have meaning um, despite mm. or inside of that life being one of condemnation. So if yeah. your life is over, but you've had a child, you can see that you are part of something larger and that you've contributed and made something. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking about life as extending beyond the margins of one limited and now ruined existence. Yeah, I felt exactly that way. That is the message that I felt at the end of the book. I mean, it's how you feel when you're a parent, you know, and I think um, people feel that way also at the end of their lives. Like a lot of people say, you know, when they are really confronting their mortality, that you see that you are part of something much larger. And I think it's deeply human to see yourself not as one um, solitary individual mm. who has, you know, surfed the loneliness of life. People say, you know, we are born and die alone. But I think that actually consciousness is very much a fabric of souls. And she thinks into that of wh- how is my life defined by something bigger than I am. I think you delivered that message exquisitely. You know, it was the kind of book that when you finish it, you are contemplative. I was contemplative and wanted to relish the whole of the story and be quiet for a few minutes to absorb that. And I think it's because of the way you concluded the book with the message being just what you described for us. Well, it sounds like you were an ideal reader. <laughs> well, it's easy when I'm a fan. So what was the book that changed your life? The Brothers Karamazov. And because? It really textured my experience as I was writing this book. And there's the scene late in the book. Um, it's called informally The Talk by the Stone. Mm-hmm. When Alyosha gathers the children after the death of their friend, and he talks to them about the sentimental and deep feeling that they are sharing in their remembrance of this dead child. And he tells them to hold that feeling in their hearts always throughout life. And I interpreted this to mean every person has a kernel of innocence Mm. inside them that has true durability. Mm. And I was shattered um, somehow by that book, but also fortified by my understanding of that scene. That's beautiful. Thank you, Rachel. For Just the Right Book, I'm Roxanne Cody, and we've been talking with Rachel Kushner about her latest and riveting book, The Mars Room, 
Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for writing this book, and I'm thrilled that there are just a ton of people that will want to read this book and I believe will benefit from it and enjoy it just as much as I have. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Roxanne. Now it's time to hear what's on the front table of politics and prose in Washington, D.C. Hello, Lissa. Hi, Roxanne. We have to stop meeting like this, honey. I know, but I'm so honored. It's so nice of you. (laughs) We are joined today by Lissa Muscatine, who is the owner with her husband, Bradley, of the legendary Politics and Prose down in Washington. And they purchased the store in 2011, and they have taken a store that I would have put at the tippy top of the heap and put it at even higher on the tippy top of the heap by making changes to the store, expanding it, uh, opening a new store on the banks of the Potomac. And and they've taken their event schedule. Just to give you some idea of the events, uh, their recent events were with Jesmyn Ward, John Meacham, Rachel Kushner, and Michael Pollan. And then just to make sure things stay busy, they've got David Sedaris coming up and Bill Clinton and James Patterson for their mystery book, The President is Missing. So, you know, to those of us who have been in the bookselling community, I used to be considered new at 28 years. Um, Lissa still qualifies as new at under uh, 10 years. It's just... It's just a boom what all of us in independent bookselling strive for. So I'm delighted to welcome you, Lisa, and your your notoriety for the purposes of this moment is we did something like 70-something episodes in our first season, and you were our first bookseller guest. And so this will play on our debut. This will be our debut of season two. Well, um, first of all, thank you for that overly generous um, welcome. And let me just say, I was honored to be on the first one for season one. I am equally honored to be on the opener for season two. Um, I want to just say to all of the listeners that we wouldn't be where we are as politics occurs without having um, had you as a friend and guide and advisor and icon and inspiration to us as sort of the best bookseller there is anywhere. So thank you for all the advice and guidance you've given us for seven years now. I mean, we we're so grateful for that. And by the way, Roxanne, one of the things that we have never done at Politics and Prose is have a podcast like this. And I just want to congratulate you for an amazing, amazing accomplishment, an amazing first season. I remember you talking about it. It is such an extraordinary uh, thing to do. And you're, you're involving people and engaging people around books and, and not just, just readers, but authors and booksellers and publishers and all sorts of interested parties. And I, I just can't commend you enough for showing uh, the innovative spirit and the creativity and genius of, uh, of, of a really, really great bookseller. That would be you. Well, so thank that, you. That's very sweet. Uh, We'll probably cut out some of those accolades, but I appreciate it. Lissa, when we um, first spoke, 
on the podcast, not first spoke. But when we first spoke on the podcast, um, Donald Trump had been elected president. Uh, I believe we spoke in December. And uh, a large chunk of our conversation was around uh, political books and current issue books. And so I'm wondering now, almost a year and a half later, are you finding in the store that political books and current issue books are equally popular, more popular, uh, less popular? What, how do you see the reader's interest changing in these issues? It's, you know, Rox, it's so interesting that you raise that because one of the first things I did thinking about being on the on the show with you is is just how much our front table is dominated still by political books. Mm. And if you, you know, you mentioned our event calendar, I counted in the last six or eight weeks, almost uh, 15 or 16 political books and authors that we're just having on our events calendar. I think there is an endless appetite, at least in Washington. And, you know, we may be somewhat a departure from the norm, given our location and the people that uh, we serve. There is an endless appetite for political books. I think people are just reeling. I think, you know, 10 times a day something happens they're trying to make sense of. Right. They want to know how to interpret it. They want to know what it all means, and they want to know what the heck to do about it. And so there's just no shortage of interest and also no shortage of books. You know, and the other thing that it makes me think about, because I envy that you do this at R.J. Julia's, we tread a little lightly on having a political point of view. And on some days, I think, geez, Roxanne, just like state your mind about this. And other times I feel like, you know what, we're a bookstore. And just like we say, we carry all books and we are engaged in civil discourse that I shouldn't have the store be taking a point of view with the risk of of creating the impression that we don't want to have the dialogue or we don't want to carry those other books. How do you how do you in at politics and prose think about this? You know that it's another great question and it's something we wrestle with all the time. We do believe that we should represent as broad a range of viewpoints and books as possible. I do think that's the essence of a democracy. I know you do too. After all, if we just wanted one point of view, we'd all move to North Korea, right? right. <laughs> so I get endlessly frustrated, even with my most, you know, liberal progressive pals, and I am definitely on that side of the spectrum, you know, when they say, oh, I can't believe you had that person and you gave them a platform. Well, if they have legitimate credentials and they have something to say and they're willing to put themselves out there, and by the way, come into our store or come to an event and in person take questions from people they've never met before, I give, you know, I think that's important. And so... We really do try to do that in practice. It's a little hard sometimes. I mean, the, the vast majority of books right now are about the Trump presidency and the administration and where our country's going, and they they tend to be, I think, on the the left side of the margin. But I, you know, I think we we continue to try to make sure we're representative. Uh, I, you know, I draw the line at certain places. I draw the line at hate. Yeah. I draw the line at people who don't have you know, real credentials and are just spouting off or trying to use a platform or who are, you know, pathological liars or whatever. 
Um, but it's tricky. It's very, very tricky. Yeah. I, you know, I struggle with it. And we never let the issue rest. You know, we don't have an, a policy um, right. other than what you're talking about, uh, you know, whether it's hate or they don't really have uh, the credentials. But on most days, I feel like I have a responsibility to have a point of view, but I tread kind of lightly about it. You know, I think the other way that we, we one of the solutions we sometimes come up with is we're willing to order pretty much any book for somebody. If you walk in the yes. store and you want a certain book that we don't carry, you know, you may want to read it just to understand how crazy or nutty somebody is, right? Well, we shouldn't deprive you of that opportunity if you're trying to educate yourself about somebody with a very far-fetched position or point of view. But it's very, very, very hard. And I think we got a little annoyed, I mean, with the with the Yiannopoulos book of, uh, about a year or two ago, whenever that was, when various booksellers were threatening to boycott Simon & Schuster over yeah. the publication of one book. I mean, that seemed absurd to me. First of all, you know, people don't have to buy the book or read the book. We don't have to, we don't have to, we make decisions all the time, right? About what to carry, to carry a book or not, you know, and it may be their literary quality and have nothing to do with politics. So we are making those kinds of judgments all the time. And this idea that there's sort of a strict litmus test, I think is very, very dangerous if you believe in a free society and in freedom of speech, even if that sometimes makes you um, uncomfortable in the sorts of things that you may have on your shelf. Yeah, and I, mean, I do. We're not, you know, if somebody comes in and wants Mein Kampf, they're going to be able to order Mein Kampf. Well, there may be a really good reason for wanting to read that, you know, historical reason. You know, one of the things that I have been trying to pay attention to is I think that books that articulate their political ideology well, whether they're on the left or the right, I'd like to introduce those and highlight those, particularly with the hope of interesting them and understanding another point of view. Exactly. Exactly. And that's what I think is a very important part of the job. I mean, I find myself being frustrated by ideologues at either end of the spectrum because I feel like they're not listening. Right. I mean, I don't think I agree completely. I don't think our job is to be censors. You know, our job is to be curators, um, but I don't think our job is to be censors. And that's a really dangerous terrain to enter right? if you're a bookstore or a bookseller. Yeah, because that's a slippery a slope. That's a very slippery slope. Very, And I don't want publishers to tell me what books to carry, and I wouldn't presume to tell them what books to publish. Yeah. I don't have to carry the books they publish. Yeah, I totally agree with you about the you know, people saying they were going to boycott Simon & Schuster, you know, then are we going to boycott, you know, somebody else because we thought it was like a really badly written book? <laughs> you know? Exactly, exactly. We're not... no, we, we, have, we have a lot of leverage, so we need to exercise it judiciously and wisely um, and thoughtfully, you know. I, I So anyway, I think you and I are on the same page on yeah, this. Yeah, that, that's not a surprise, Lisa. So, um Cover for me first what you're personally loving to read before we get to your front table. Okay. Well, I have actually, I'm very, this is really embarrassing. I was so behind on some of the Hardy bestsellers that I went through a run of reading all the Hardy bestsellers like Manhattan Beach and Pachinko and The Immortalists and all of which I, I like. I mean, I love Manhattan Beach. I love Pachinko. 
Um, so I went through sort of this phase of just catching up on fiction. I'm really embarrassed to say I hadn't read them up until fairly recently. I wouldn't be embarrassed. Well, you know, I am. Um, and then I've read some, some galleys, um, that I'm looking forward to, which I'll tell you about in a minute. Um, I, I, a book that I really want to call attention to, um, that's, I think an important and really, a really important book for understanding race in this country. And it's sort of the origins of what we're seeing play out now in various parts of the country is Gilbert King's new book, Beneath the Ruthless Sun. Mm. I don't know if you ever read his first book, The Devil in the Grove. I, I which didn't. Won, which won the Pulitzer Prize almost completely out of the blue. No one saw that coming, most of all him. In fact, I think his book was about to be sent off to be pulped, and he had to buy up the remaining copies, and he was all depressed, and then he got a call that he'd won the Pulitzer. And it's just <laughs> a phenomenal book about really the rise of Thurgood Marshall and the NAACP around this awful case of false justice at the hands of a very uh, white supremacist sheriff in, in Lake County, Florida. And this next book is one that he discovered. It's a story he discovered while doing the first book. And um, it's just He's a wonderful writer and storyteller and uh, so committed to social justice. And it, it hasn't got as much attention as some of the other books like, you know, um, James Foreman's book and, and, and Just Mercy and Michelle Alexander, The New Jim Crow. And yet it's sort of up there in that category, I would say. So I want just people to take a look at that. So tell it's us called, the title again, because beneath, I think it beneath, is important. Beneath a Ruthless Sun. And if you pair it with his first book, The Devil in a Grove, you get a remarkable landscape of the evolution of race and white supremacy and the justice system in this country over a span of decades. Um, so Fabulous. it's a terrific book. So I, I'm very high on that book. Um, Just one I, thing it, to add, Lisa, before you go on. One of the yeah. interviews that was my favorite interview of last year was interviewing James Foreman for Locking Up Our Own. And it's the only episode that went long that we decided to preserve the entire length and put it in two parts. Mm-hmm. He was, I mean, not only did I love the book, and it does take a longer perspective of how we came to some of the issues that we're now um, seeing more clearly, but he is just the loveliest, most articulate guy that it was it was such an honor to interview him. He's a wonderful man. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. We've done a lot. We, of course, had him at the store, but we've done a lot of private events with him because we really want to help him. We think his book is so important. Of course, we were thrilled that he's gotten the, the uh, you know, the the recognition that he has. Um, but I, I, I absolutely know what you're talking about. He's just a wonderful person and much deserved all the credit he's mm. received. Well, I'm excited so, about reading these, but now we yeah, need read, to hear more. Yeah, so I think those are, are, are definitely worth reading. Um, you know, in terms of the political books, I'm just going to mention two. I mean, there's so many, you know, from Comey to Wolf to Corn and Isikoff to Ronan Farrow to John Beach and Michael Hayden. We have James Clapper at the, you know, for an event tomorrow, uh, Jim Fallows and his wife. But the two that I think are possibly the two you need to read, if you haven't, are Madeleine Albright's Fascism, A Warning, only because... Um, I put it up on our staff picks, my staff picks wall, and all I said was, need we say more, which right. is kind of what I feel about it. And, of course, she weaves in her own personal and diplomatic experience into the story, and she's a great, great uh, writer and storyteller. And then the other book that I really liked that, um, you know, I, not that I didn't expect to, but I, I gave it to my daughter, who 
you know, big into social social justice and activism, um, is is Cecile Richards' book, Make Trouble. You know, she's had a fascinating life, and I think at this moment her message is so important because she and, of course, her mother, Ann Richards, are people who just don't give up in the face of what seem to be daunting and impossible challenges politically. Mm. And we need to remember that, you know, that you just can't give up. You just got to keep trying and, and you lose. You know, you do lose some of these battles, but you have to lose to get to the wins. And so I think her message is really important. And it's just a, a refreshing story of, of a life that's, that's about doing good in the best, best sense. So I'm, you know, I like that book a lot. Um, and then I sort of gravitated to the books that are a diversion from politics. And I want to mention Todd Purdom's Something Wonderful, which uh, mm. I've seen a couple of little blurbs in the Times about, you know, sort of trying to give it a lift, I think. Todd is a fantastic writer and reporter. Of course, he was a political reporter, White House correspondent for the New York Times for a long time, and foreign correspondent, and then uh, writes for Vanity Fair and Politico now. And now he's based out in L.A. But it turns out, in addition to being a wonderful writer about politics, he has been a lifelong lover of the American song and Broadway. And so he has written a book about Rodgers and Hammerstein and their uh, unusual and in some ways tense and tortured relationship, but also very successful partnership. Um, And it's because he's such an adept writer and storyteller, it's just, it's a fun read. It's just sort of balm for the psyche at this moment in our, uh, you know, amidst all the turmoil of the country. Mm. And so I recommend that. Um, The other book that I'm trying to give uh, a lot of attention to, and again, I'm biased because, but you should be too, because this is about one of your almost local authors, Ann Fadiman, who of course is one of the most popular uh, teachers of creative writing at Yale. And she's written a book called The Wine Lover's Daughter, which is this tiny little book. Have you read it by any chance? No, I haven't yet, but I will. You should. You know, it's short. It's not that long. I I have to say, it really spoke to me because I found all these crazy similarities. Whether my father was also a was a professor, was also a Jewish immigrant, was also a lover of wine, and all they, there were all these funny parallels and similarities. But you know, I love that book because, first of all, she's just such a wonderful writer. Oh, I love her writing. Secondly, there is a real art required and talent required to be able to write about one's father in a way that is loving and and also candid and touching and, and funny, and then to get to the deeper point. And mm. her deeper point is really that, you know, much of his wine loving was really about his embarrassment over not being fully assimilated as a Jew in, you know, in America at that time, yeah. and in the sort of elite circles that he traveled in. And so it's a wonderful book. So I, I'm very high on that. And it's a quick read. So everybody should read it. You know, by then, the way, just as an yeah. intersection, one of the yeah. people that I thought did a brilliant job talking about his parents in this case, but most particularly about his mother in a way that was both loving and honest, was Chris Buckley's book, Loving Mom and Pop. Which I have not read. You know, that's really worth reading, Lisa. He did, he too, he was certainly funny, uh, but he was more poignant than you expect. And he was uh, very thoughtful on the, you know, the endearing and not so endearing qualities about both his parents. Well, and in both cases, Ann Fadiman and Christopher Vogel, right, we're talking about fathers who were very, who were public figures in their own 
fears. Exactly. And and well done. So I, yeah, that's a great recommendation. I will I will definitely um, take you up on that. You know, it's reminding me, and I wasn't going to mention this book, although I think you've talked about it on one of your podcasts at one point. Uh, one of my very favorite memoirs of the last couple of years is Lab Girl by Hope Jaron. Oh yeah. Which you know is just who knew, knew and you know some botanist nobody's ever heard of, and she manages to write this incredible memoir. But interestingly, right, she never really does talk about her parents very much. She clearly had a difficult upbringing. She kind of shies away from it a little bit. I mean, more than I would have expected, and yet she pulls it off in a completely different manner. Exactly. Um, so, one other book that I would mention, maybe two. Um, you know, this is a kind of offbeat novel, and it hasn't gotten amount of attention. I have it on my staff picks because I think it's very ambitious and it covers terrain that is not often covered in, in enough in novels. It covers sort of environmental stuff, immigration, class, and race. It's set in London and it's written by Aminata Forna, mm-hmm. who um, is half Scottish, half West African. I forget exactly off the top of my head which country uh, her dad is from. And she's a, also a wonderful writer, and it's a it's it's a really good book that just sort of takes you into a different world with interesting characters. It's a little it's a little I wouldn't say far fetched or it's not really magical realism, which I really don't like personally. But there are some things in it that cause you to raise your eyebrows for a while. But it, I, I I hope people will read it. It's it's an interesting, ambitious novel, but not hard to read and um, really deals with sort of questions of immigration and home and identity in ways that are important right now. What's the title, Lisa? It's called Happiness. Happiness. By Aminata Forna, and she teaches uh, uh, writing and literature at Georgetown and is uh, also another one of these wonderfully lovely people. And they had, there was a buzz about that book right from the get-go. I mean, I think the publisher was very excited, you know, got the word out to us as booksellers, and it's Evidence to me of what a good job I think publishers do with books that they're excited about to make sure the most of us read it. Yeah, exactly. Um, I, I think that's right. I think that is why I read it originally. I got a galley of it. Another book that would fall into that category. Have you read or uh, do you, have you heard much about Smart Women by Michelle Dean? Uh, you know, I'm going to be interviewing her. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I think it's a really good book, and it you know she ta- she she basically covers ten different writers from Dorothy Parker to you know Rebecca West and Pauline Kael and Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, John, you know Janet Malcolm, and it's it is a smart book. It's called yeah. Sharp. Um, the one thing I, uh, I I don't that I wish she had done, and I I understand I think why she didn't. You know, you could have had some some a little more diverse group in there. I mm. mean, you know, I wish he had had Roxanne Gay or and or Zadie Smith and or Chimamanda Adichie, um, because sexism applies to to them too, as does racism. So to hear their perspectives, and these are all, these are women of color who've had strong opinions and have made an art of writing and expressing their opinions. I would have liked just to hear from them as well. Maybe that'll be your next book. Yeah. Yeah. But I was fat. I, I agree with you on both counts. I mean, I was fascinated because I adore so many of the women she was covering. Yeah. But I I it did remind me of how we have our own sort of unconscious bias as we think about things. Right. Exactly. And there are plenty of women who've had uh, these 
you know, similar and more varied experiences who have extraordinary voices and talents that we should be listening to. So, um, so I agree with that for sure. And then what I actually just started yesterday, I started Educated yeah. by Kara Westover, which, you know, I for, I wasn't really going to read because, again, I don't kind of, you know, I'm sort of, can I divert myself and feel better about things? But it's just, uh, you know, everybody who's read it is raving about it. And I think it's a fascinating story. So, you know, I just um, interviewed her last week. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I hadn't read it. Kevin actually read it before I did. And he loved it. And I was, you know, she's done so many interviews and has had such huge success that I was a little bit worried that the conversation might not be as adventurous as it could be. But I I think her capacity for remaining self-reflective made for a very interesting interview uh, with her in and the way in which she was able to hold two conflicting emotions, mm-hmm. and that is to love and forgive her parents. So this is a memoir about a woman that was raised in very unusual, extreme circumstances in a farm in Idaho. And so she could hold both the idea of love and forgiveness along with being comfortably estranged from them. Yeah. I mean, she grew up in a survivalist, right, evangelical or whatever, and harsh. And so, yeah, I'm really excited to to read it. And I need, I will listen to that podcast. That's one of the ones I've missed, which I I definitely will. Well, it hasn't played yet. So you have time. Well, no wonder I've missed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I'm, I'm really excited to read, to read that book. I think, um, I mean, she's what thirty or thirty-two uh, years it's old. Crazy. She's very, it's yeah, crazy. It's crazy. I mean, it's really crazy. The other book that I just finished, believe it or not, and I read it because my oldest son read it and just pronounced it one of the best books he'd ever read. And he, of course, he loves fantasy, and I don't, and he loves all sorts of other things that I don't. But I thought, okay, if he really thinks it's that great, you've probably read it. I'm sure many of your readers have read it. Um, is Kazushi Goro's The Buried Giant? You know, I haven't read it, and it's a crazy book. It's, but it's again. He's a beautiful, beautiful writer, and um, it's it's a very sort of touching and in some ways sad fantasy um, set mm. in um, uh, King Arthurian times. And anyway, so that's if you're a fantasy person who likes really, really good writing, I would recommend that. Excellent. And give us one book that isn't out yet that you've read the galley that you're giving everybody sort of an advanced peek at. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I have not read The Galley of the Patterson-Clinton, even though I begged for it, and I'm introducing them at our event on June 7th, so I've been <laughs> promised I'll get it before then. But no, I'm going to give you two. One is coming out sooner than the other. The first one is um, this really intense, raw, refreshingly different voice memoir um, by a, a young man named Casey Gerald. And um, have you heard about this book? I haven't. Galley? It's called There Will Be No Miracles Here. It's, it's a pretty incredible book. It's, it's written in a voice unlike any other I've ever read. He is a young African-American whose father was a star football player at Ohio State back in the day. And then the family moved to Texas to be with their, the dad's family. The mother, you discover in the memoir, has a serious mental illness, I think bipolarity or 
uh, manic depression and is not really able to take care of the kids, him and, him and his sister. And the dad falls on hard times and ends up in prison. And this young man discovers along the way as a young, young, as a boy that he's gay. He grows up in an evangelical black church. He has to deal with that. He's also a fantastic football player. And uh, again, this is going to hit close to home for you. He gets recruited by Yale and goes to Yale and is a football star at Yale and goes on to, you know, a pretty successful career. I mean, he's again, he's only 30 or something now. And he's written this book that is raw in how revealing it is about his life that he's kind of kept under wraps, that I think most of his you know professional peers and classmates at Yale know the very superficial um, facts about. But the voice Roxanne is so unusual. It's, it's just unusual. And I spoke to his editor, Becky Salatan, at Riverhead about it. And I said, whoa, you know, this is just extraordinary. She sent me the galley. And she said, you know, we knew he had an amazing story. We had no idea that his voice was going to be this powerful. Wow. So I would keep an eye out for that. I'm going to get it in the store tomorrow. I'm sure we have the galley. Yeah, you probably do. Um, And then the other one, again, for levity, and by next fall, right around the midterms, we're all going to need levity. I have been reading Dave Barry's Lessons from Lucy. You're a dog lover. You know I'm now, as of about a year ago, a dog owner and lover. It is hilarious. Oh, good. Absolutely I love hilarious. Him. It's just so funny. It's just one of the, it's just, I don't want it to end. It's like, okay, I need this kind of humor in my life, like yeah. on a regular basis. So that would be good. But that's not coming out till October. All right. Well, Lisa, I just need to have you on more because I lo- I love hearing book ideas from you. <laughs> well, ditto. I I I love doing this. It's so much fun, and I really I can't thank you. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor. It really is. And thank you so much. So we've been talking with Lisa Muscatine from the legendary Politics and Prose in Washington, and she shared. I'm sure you'll want to take notes. Don't worry about it. We'll have the, all the books that she mentioned up on our website and we'll link to her website because you want to check out everything. For those of you not in D.C., you'll probably want to take trips to see some of those authors. Please come visit us. Yeah. come. uh, I'm going to come down and visit. I haven't seen the new store. Yeah, come. And we're we're opening another new one at uh, Union Market in about uh, a month or less. Oh, so maybe I'll wait until they're both open and then I'll come down. Well, we would love to have you anytime. All right. Lisa, thank you so much. Thank you, Roxanne. Thanks again to my friend, Lisa Muscatine. And for a complete list of all the books we talked about today, including Rachel Kushner's The Mars Room and what's on the front table of politics and prose, just go to bookpodcast.com. And next week on Just the Right Book Podcast, you will hear my conversation with Tara Westover, She has been on the bestseller list. This has been this runaway memoir. And we want to hear what your favorite memoir is. So message us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and record an audio message on your phone or email it to us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com and we'll play it on the show next week. And I'll share some of my favorite memoirs as well. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. I hope you'll enjoy our new music. And our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.